dear listeners, welcome back one and all to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And you are tuned into RepublicBroadcasting.org here on this Tuesday evening. And uh, once again, thank you all to, for tuning in. And what an interesting conversation we have lined up tonight for you with our old friend Michael Vale of StratRisks.com. And for those of you out there who have been listening to the Corbett Report for any length of time, you'll probably already know Michael and his work at StratRisks.com. For those who haven't, once again, that's StratRisks, S-T-R-A-T-R-I-S-K-S dot com. An incredible resource on all sorts of things that are going on on the geopolitical risk board. And uh, so much happening across the face of the planet, as I'm sure I don't need to tell all of you out there. So let's just go straight to our guest, Michael Vale. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me on your show, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with uh, people who uh, look at the same things and think alike. Well, it, I certainly don't think that everyone has to think what I think or believe what I believe, but I always put people in the direction of the information from which we can derive what's really happening, and certainly Strat Risks is a great website for that. It collects so much information in so many different parts of the globe. So right off the bat tonight, I want to get straight into some of the geopolitics that you're covering on StratRisks.com, including the great lumbering giant, uh, the bear that seems to be stirring in the east, Russia, of course, uh, being more and more open with some of its military maneuvers and aggressions. And I note right now you have Russia creates special Arctic troops up front and center on StratRisks.com. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's interesting what it is, and this seems to be the uh, the prevailing sort of theme uh, around the world, are territorial disputes, uh, whether it's uh, Turkey and Israel over the Cyprus, also with Greece, whether it's China and India, whether it's Pakistan and India over Kashmir, Balochistan, um, what this is about is about the resources in the Arctic. Now, there are many different parties that are involved in this. Uh, of course, there's the United States, there's Canada, there's the uh, European nations. Some of them, like uh, just about everybody owns and, and says they have a claim towards those resources in the Arctic. And the, and the more they dig the more resources they find there. So recently, Russia has uh, put uh, frontier troops uh, in the region. And uh, this is their big uh, new push, as they call it, a new strategic defense position, um, uh, basically making sure that they uh, protect what's theirs. And uh, they're going really forward with this and uh, is setting a precedent. Well, as you note, there's certainly a buildup in a lot of the different Arctic nations. And, of course, being a Canadian myself, I've been watching the conservative government under uh, Stephen Harper talking about this and building it up quite a bit for a while now. And it does note in this Pravda article that you're linking to uh, the Canadian Ministry of Defense has recently published a report called the Arctic Council, its place in the future management of the Arctic. So uh, Canada staking its claim in the region and, of course, uh, the United States and then, of course, some of the uh, other countries in, in Europe also staking their claims on the Arctic. It's uh, shaping up to be quite a scramble for resources that until now haven't really been looked at as part of this uh, geopolitical game. Definitely. And uh, uh, speaking of uh, Cyprus, there is a pipeline called the Leviathan Pipeline. There's some other others there. And it basically it's an enclave. Uh, which belongs to, of course, Greece, originally Greece. Uh, Turkey annexed a little portion of it. Now that the Greeks want to work with Israel to build a military base on the region to protect the pipeline and the resources. So everybody's out there basically 
doing what they used to do, uh, you know, I, I uh, claim this region for France or for Spain. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing to think about, but absolutely, following pipeline politics in a lot of ways seems to uh, uh, precede a lot of the hot spots that we find popping up in the news. But on that note, uh, we'll take a short break here with our guest Michael Vale of StratRisks.com. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Afghanis in Afghanistan, Vietnamese in Vietnam, Iraq is in Iraqi land. We bombed them all. And on that cheery note, welcome back to the program, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we're talking to Michael Vale of StratRisks.com. We're going to be talking about a broad range of very interesting subjects, but we were just before the break there talking a little bit about geopolitics, which, of course, is uh, essentially what uh, StratRisks is about. It's uh, Actually, it's about a, quite a range of issues, but... Lots of things happening on the globe, on the big stage. And uh, before we get off the topic of Russia, Michael, I'd like to take a look at another story that just broke recently. In fact, just broke yesterday um, in the Chicago Tribune, for example. They have the headline, Putin to resign as chairman of United Russia Party. And uh, for the listeners out there who, who may not know, Russia is at least nominally a federation and a, a semi-presidential republic and the president is supposed to be the head of state and the prime minister the head of government. So the uh, the situation here is that Putin was the head of the United Russia Party when he was prime minister, and now that he's becoming president, again, he's going to step down from that position as the head of the party in order to, to uh, I guess, put some distance between the president and the, and the, part, the party system. I don't know really if this amounts to, to anything important, because I don't think anyone's believing that the, the head of the party is going to have much of a say in the driver's seat as the president. But, uh, Michael, what's your take on this move? Well, like you said, I, I agree. It's kind of, you know, separating himself from from the party, from, you know, essentially the, posi- the position. And uh, Putin recently, you know, ever since he became president-elect, he has really been trying to tighten up the ship and centralize power. Um, they've uh, basically, they've essentially set up... Uh, at least try to set up an anti-color revolution council within Duma. Uh, now they're working on a private national guard system, which basically will be, which will be loyal to Putin, <laughs> only loyal to Putin. So, you know, he right now is very busy centralizing power within his grip, pushing away all of the, all of these enemies and former allies that he was tied with, especially some of these oligarchs, who have a lot of money and a lot of influence and gravitas. I, very, very busy. And also the, the Eurasian Union, which he wants so bad, which would be a, a going back to the Soviet Union, super-centralized council of power, uh, essentially. Uh, to me, it looks like, um, you know, now with all the protests that went on in Russia and the, the thuggery that went on in Russia during the election, they had... Military and police out in droves during an election. What sort of fo- uh, show of force is this when when you're supposedly be uh, supposedly to be you know ostensibly to be electing someone and yet there are all sorts of uh, you know people out there trying to make sure you don't protest, to make sure you vote for the right person. 
They had carouseling going on where they brought people in on buses to vote for Putin. I mean, if this is a complete sham, I don't know what is. But uh, ever since he got, uh, became president-elect, you know, he has really been going forward with all of the dreams that he is wanting to do uh, when he became, uh, when he had to step down and let Medvedev take over. On that note, there has been some suggestion that uh, that a lot of the same groups that have been fomenting rebellions in other places have been doing their their usual tricks in trying to foment the uh, the protests that we saw in Russia leading up to the elections. Although certainly there is obvious room for grievance among the electorate there, but uh, but for what extent does your research show that there was some some type of outside influence in the uh, the protests there in Russia? Well, of course, there's the NGOs and there's loyal opposition. So it's really hard to tell whether or not it was legitimate or not. And uh, one of Putin's main uh, propagandists uh, was uh, basically had to step down because he didn't see the protest coming. He didn't know that this was going to be as big as it was. They were used to getting, you know, maybe two or three, you know, hundred and sometimes up to a thousand people protesting about one thing or another. But it hasn't really been a big deal. But when you had the massive show of force... Out there, we had 10,000 people protesting, and uh, I would I would say as probably you know 40 percent you know real people, and the and the rest sort of hired thugs and opposition NGOs trying to stir up the pot a bit. It's it's really hard to tell because there's so many different dynamics at play. There certainly are, and unfortunately there's a, a decided dearth of information on Russia and China in a lot of the Western media, as I'm sure you're all too familiar with, but uh, but obviously being covered in the foreign media in, to a much greater extent, which is why Strat Risks, I think, is such a great resource. It, it really does cover so many of the different areas that aren't uh, that people aren't keeping their eye on. Um, just finally, before we get off the topic of Russia, RT was having a, a report that just came out today that's talking about a new, uh, I guess, reorganization of Pentagon-level intelligence that's going to be yes. focusing on China and Iran. Any any thoughts on that? Um, essentially, they, they're going to call it the, um, the Defense Clandestine uh, Service. And what it is is that uh, the intelligence agencies, the 16 intelligence agencies in the United States, and those, of course, we know, none that we don't know anything about. They have really been getting their teeth kicked in uh, because of groups like the ISI, India's uh, Research and Analysis Wing, Germany's BND, and so even Hillary Clinton had to say that they were losing the propaganda war, the intelligence war, and they have really not many analysts that know the language of the people in the regions that they're interested in. So they're going to have to really sort of switch chairs on the Titanic a bit and uh, provide new funding and more analysts and more people who are really on the ground. But uh, they don't trust many of those people who are on the ground anyway, so I don't know what will come of it. I guess time will tell, but uh, I'm not holding my breath waiting for some bastions of, uh, of truth and you know goodness to, to come from this. But at any rate, I guess we can reserve judgment for now. Let's, uh, let's move on. Um, in the When we were preparing for tonight's episode, you said that you wanted to talk about behaviorism and uh, and history which sounds fascinating to me so why don't you uh why don't you start along those lines yes um really this is this is kind of my bread and butter um originally researching and, and as, as well as technology but what it what it is um we like many of the animals 
um, we have something that is basically our pro programming. It is called the control response model. And I can give you examples. Let's say you take uh, a lizard. A lizard wants some food. That's to drive. He notices the prey, which is the stimulus, and therefore naturally, automatically, he flicks his tongue out, which is the response. Kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. You know what I mean? Like plants need sunlight. That's to drive. And the lack of sunlight is the stimulus. And, you know, and, and plants grow towards the sun. You see that a lot with a lot of plants that grow towards the sun. That is their response to the, to the lack of sunlight being the stimulus. And many people who have created our educational system today, uh, people like John Dewey, who really fashioned it, were behavioralists. And they did go to the Leipzig School in Germany, the same school that Pavlov, uh, uh, Pavlov went to and many of his, uh, his people Wilhelm Wundt and the rest of them. And there's an interesting quote. It says, um, let me, let me, let me get this quote here. It says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and the power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom. And that was, uh, Viktor Frankl in, uh, in the book, Man's Search for Meaning. And what it really means is sometimes we do have uh, program behavior and responses where they provide the stimulus and we respond. You know, like 9-11. 9-11 was a big shock to the senses. And so our response was we have to do something about this and therefore they give us something. And of course it's the Patriot Act or something else like it. And and really it's kind of like uh, uh, human beings being automatons where if they provide the right stimulus, the right environment, and all of this, of course, was written in, in Brave New World. Exactly right. In fact, the Huxley family has been very much at the heart of that for, for quite a while. And Aldous, uh, of course, gave his famous speech in 1962 at Berkeley talking about how that was really just based on actual experimentation and things that were already underway. And so uh, I think the implication is that there's a lot of research into this going on behind the scenes, sometimes clandestinely, but sometimes I think quite out in the open, that uh, that a lot of the public would never give a, a, a thought about, would never even conceive of. No, I'll give you an example of uh, program behavior. Okay, one must want something, that's to drive. One must notice something, that's the stimulus. One must do something, that is response. And then you get the reward. Uh, you get something, and then there is the reward. Let's say, like, uh, you know, workers need basic necessities. There's the drive. The cutting of jobs and lowering of wages is the stimulus. Workers work more for less and are happy just to be employed, and that is their response. And uh, essentially, that is how people really, really become tuned to whatever uh, the, the masses want them t uh, to basically do. And uh, also, there's another thing uh, which is, is similar to that, which, of course, Pavlov developed the theory of the conditioned reflex. We all know all about that. But the conditioned reflex and behavioralism was really pushed into the educational system to mold kids into, you know, being like model society members. You know, the, the, the school bus comes to get them, the bell rings, they go to school, the bell rings, they get out of school, and then when they become adults, the bell rings, you know, and the whistle blows and they go to work. All of this is behavioralism. And uh, early on in the Ze Leipzig, Leipzig school, that's a hard word to say in German, Leipzig school, they did electroshock stimulus on people to see what their responses were. 
And um, a lot of this has to do with also our patterns, you know, where we have uh, overflowing stimulus, so much stimulus to the, uh, to the point you really think about nothing else. And it's kind of called the guinea, uh, guinea pig effect for scientists. But we'll talk more about that. Yes, we will. Well, in a lot of senses, uh, we are the guinea pigs that they have been uh, testing on for so long. And unfortunately, we see that everywhere in our society right now. But on that note, let's take another short break. We'll be back with Michael Vale of StratRisks.com here on Corporate Report Radio right after this short break. Desire, stimulus, and response. If we can understand that process, then we can short-circuit it, short-circuit it, or I guess we can use it to program others or be programmed ourselves. There's a lot of things to be uh, to, to think about there and to, to really contemplate. So that is exactly what we're delving into tonight with our guest, Michael Vale of StratRisks.com, talking about behavioralism and how it ties into history. So obviously we've looked at the Leipzig School and its construction of that history. Of course, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443, or you can tweet me at Corbett Report. Happy to read your comments or questions on air for our guest who uh, has a wealth of information on a variety of subjects. So really anything that you want to bring up or ask about would be fine. Michael, let's, uh, let's continue with that conversation where we left off uh, just before the break there talking about how this really ties into to the history, the suppressed history that uh, a lot of us don't learn about of people like the uh, the Deweys and, and people like this that we usually just know of as uh, the inventor of the decimal system for the libraries or, or things along those lines <laughs> without knowing the real basis of their work. How does this really influence people at uh, at a day-to-day level? Yeah, there was something that uh, Mao, Zedong, Mao Zedong called the mold. And uh, what he said was that his people would be pushed into the mold, and they would be the new men of society. Um, they would not read books unless they were books that, that he produced that were filled with propaganda. And that, you know, essentially, they would have no identity except for the national identity. Let me read an interesting quote from a book called The Leipzig Connection. It says, uh, once thesis laid the uh, philosophical basis for the principles of the conditioning layer to be developed by Pavlov, who studied physiology in Leipzig in 1884. Five years after Wundt had inaugurated his laboratory there, an American behaviorist uh, uh, psychologist such as Watson and Skinner, and we talked about B.F. Skinner before, uh, he says, for lobotomies and electroconvulsive therapy, for schools oriented more towards the socialization of the child uh, than towards the development for, of intellect. And uh, for the emergence of a society more and more blatantly devoted to the gratification of every sensory devi- uh, de- excuse me, de- uh, de- desires and at the expense of responsibility and achievement. That is Paolo Leone, the Leipzig, con- uh, Leipzig Connection. And also this quote here says, uh, from this and other experiments, Pavlov developed his theory for the conditioned reflex, which explains learning and training are the building up of a mosaic of conditioned reflexes each one based upon the establishment of association between stimuli. The greater the number of learned complex responses, also called patterns, the greater number of conditioned reflexes develop. Because man, above all animals, has the greatest capacity for learning, he is the animal with the greatest capacity for such complicated conditioning. 
Pavlov's experiments were of great value in the study of animal and human behavior and in the study of the development of neurotic symptoms. And this was established, uh, essentially, psychology uh, once was originally psychology, basic psychology. It became, over a number of years early on, it became the study of behavioralism. And uh, we all have, uh, essentially, different types of sensory information. Uh, I like to call it the VAC, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. Visual goes visual, auditory, what you hear, kinesthetic, what you feel. And uh, early on, they found out that if you flood a person with too much stimulus, they break down. There's something called Miller's Law. You can look it up on Wiki. And uh, Miller, uh, Miller came up with something called chunking. If you notice, even in our society, um, we chunk our information, like 555-1212 or whatever have you, and we chunk that information so that we can process it and, and keep it. Well, if you have too much information that you cannot process, then uh, you swallow it, essentially, uh, uh, you know, shifting towards the left brain, the mammalian brain, um, where you take in everything in holes. And it's fight or flight, uh, essentially that. And uh, ADHD has a lot to do with that, where children are overstimulated. What they take in is sugar and, and, and dyes and everything else, and there's, and there's too much around them going on. There's propaganda billboards all along the roads and the highways and towns. Uh, there's sounds and music and you know people talking back and forth. All of us are trying to process information. Hey, James, have you ever you ever gone out of town to like a small town out in the rural area, and it's almost like a weight lifts off your shoulders? I I, I know exactly what that is. It's weird because I grew up in a small town in Alberta, Canada, and at that time I I thought it was terrible. There was just nothing to do. I was so bored. But now <laughs> that I'm older and I've lived in cities most of my life, I I yearn to get out to the uh, the smaller towns and the countryside now. Well, what it is, is we're all overstimulated, and that makes it easy, it makes it easy for them to program us, because we can only take in so much, and we drop off a lot, you know, um, it's almost like, like packets of information on the internet, you know, if we can't filter it, then we drop it, and what it is, is when you have too much uh, of stimulus, and you can't respond, you break down. Well, once you go to a simple town, there's no road rage, there's no propaganda everywhere, no television sets. And essentially, like, like a weight drops off your shoulder, and you go, ah, oh, I can think. <laughs> and that is the basically the, the system that they have established and set up for us in these urban cities. I think we can all relate to that, that experience, and unfortunately, it's just becoming more and more common with all of our digital devices, basically ensuring that we're 24-7 connected straight into the main mainframe and... It's uh, not too much of an imaginative leap to get from there to being jacked into the Matrix, uh, quite literally. But on that note, let's take a short break. Once again, talking to Michael Vale, StratRisks.com, 1-800-313-9443 will get you up and on the air. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to the broadcast. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Michael Vale of StratRisks.com. 
talking about behavioralism and history and some of the interesting and quite terrifying in some respects uh, experimentation that has been underway for decades, if not centuries, to better understand and manipulate the actions and reactions of people, including you and me. And unfortunately, I think we understand all too well how that works in various aspects of our lives as we are inundated constantly by all sorts of manipulations from the, uh, well, all the, uh, the advertising and all of the various things that are flooding us constantly. So it's certainly something that's, uh, that's almost too overwhelming to really even begin to wrap our minds around. But that's never stopped me from, uh, from biting off more than I can chew. So on that note, we have a couple of callers waiting on the line. So let's get them up in, in the conversation. First, we have Arthur in Georgia. So, Arthur, thanks for joining us tonight. Good evening, gentlemen. Um, I just tuned in about ten minutes ago, but I found it very interesting. Um, and I have to think back when I was growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and at the age of 14 we moved down here, and I noticed there was a major difference in the lifestyle. And I noticed that, like you were saying, uh, you know, I calmed down quite a bit. Well, here and now we are a couple generations later, and here's where I'm kind of a little bit stumped. Um, my niece has a 7-year-old boy, and I see a lot of me in him. He's very active, very um, energetic, and he likes to test the limits. And I was the same way. But what we're having a problem with is they want to medicate him with Ritalin, trying to claim it's that ADHD thing thing going on. And I keep trying to convince them that he's a seven-year-old boy. And yeah, I'm wondering, do you have any ideas of what, exactly how I can put this argument to them that he's, he's being a seven-year-old boy, we need to address it as that issue and not try to dope him up. Michael, do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, first thing I, w- I would say is um, diet has a lot to do with, with that. I mean, with all the sugars and, and dyes and artificial colors and flavors. But also he is a, a, a child, and child, and children behave just like that. I was the same way. The thing, the thing about ADHD is that, uh, which a lot of skeptics and scientists have said that if you cannot diagnose it in the body, then it does not exist. If you cannot prove the ADHD is real by examining it through the body, maybe the brain or, or, you know, electro pathways or, you know, maybe uh, some sort of, uh, chemical reaction in the brain, maybe different. If you can't diagnose it, then it is not real by the, the medical and scientific standard. So um, I would go about it that way. I, I would also possibly try to change his diet and uh, it really just say he is a child. I mean, honestly, a lot of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s, all of us would be on drugs today because they push them in the schools. That's the first thing they do. And that goes back to Huxley and the pharma, uh, pharmacological revolution, saying that everyone should be on these. And, and honestly, the way the way I look at it, and when you have you know, 50 to 60 percent of society on these drugs, their their minds are altered. They're in a different reality from ours, and uh, essentially, they want everyone to be on that different reality than we are. And just to just to add to that, when we're talking about Ritalin, often when when we're looking at ADHD, they'll also 
prescribe a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, an SSRI drug, which uh, has been linked to, to increased suicidal tendencies. And yeah. pretty much every example of a uh, mass school shooter you can think of, they were on SSRIs at the time. Um, and you can go check that out for yourself. So that's, I think, another aspect of that that's quite frightening. And I agree. I think that uh, it's it's uh, amazing to me that we uh, we take someone in this situation that they've been placed into, this regimented school system, and if they don't behave the way that we think they're supposed to behave, there must be something wrong with them, as opposed to something wrong with the system that they've been placed into. And I know it's extremely difficult to, to put that argument to a parent who may be concerned and may think that this Ritalin is going to help that situation, but... Uh, it's something that I, I mean, we have to try to to get people to understand from that perspective. I so think Arthur, television hell has a lot to do with it too. Uh, you know, television changes the brain state, and well, it can make kids even more active than than they once were. Arthur, you say that uh, that this uh, boy is uh, very much like you were at that age. Do you think uh, you might have been in the si- similar situation of facing this type of art Ritalin or SSRIs or other psychoactive drugs if you've been dry- growing up in this era? Well, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s when boys were boys. And when I was in the big city, I always had something to do, so I really wasn't too much of a problem until we got down here and I got bored. And I see that in him. He's really bored because we live way out in the country. We don't have TV. He doesn't do the Internet thing at all, period. Um... He plays in the yard, you know, as best as he can, but I see a very bored young man, and that's why he acts out just as I did. And that's what I'm trying to explain to these people. I'm like, you guys are my age. Don't you remember what it was like when we were children and we didn't have drugs? They chopped it up till we were children. Let the boy be a boy, but, you know, use some discipline with him and of course you know at that point there was no man in his life well now my niece has got this pretty pretty decent guy in her life now and ever since he's been around i've noticed my nephews calm down a little bit also i i would also uh uh, think that you should maybe uh help him find uh, something that he's interested in and sort of stimulate that growth because uh, once someone finds something they want to do or a hobby they're interested in, their energies go towards that than towards just, you know, random, random stuff. All right. Absolutely. Well, I, well, gentlemen, I appreciate it. And, uh, again, very interesting conversation. Very interesting indeed, and it brings up some interesting uh, stories and responses. So thank you thank so much for sharing that, Arthur. And uh, and also we have Lark in Texas on the line, so let's go to Lark. Well, hi there, James. Um, and uh, to you, Michael. I hey, Lark, I remember you. Yeah, I appreciate your work on uh, uh, start risk, by the way. I think you're doing a good job there. Um, regarding behaviorism, I've been collecting a list of isms, over at my program notes page lately. And so when you brought up behaviorism tonight, it made me think, should I include that word in my list? And uh, uh, it seems to me that it probably should be included in there, but I'm not sure yet. And uh, I'm tracing it back to, frankly, utilitarianism and industrialism and tying it in also to progressivism. 
And the reason I say that is because uh, where I'm going with this is uh, I'm trying to get a definitive list going, but I want it condensed or concise. And uh, I'm also considering uh, um, Kaczynski's thesis, Industrial Society and Its Future, as well as that YouTube video called The Net, LFD, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, LSD and the Unabomber or something, or either it's a German film, quite intriguing, but they talk about these uh, behaviorists, and they talk about people like Norbert Wiener's work with cybernetics and others, and I think it goes back to I.A. Richard's work, too. But I think my question is, is because you guys are pretty uh, sharp guys that I respect, and I know you you're fairly well read. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are regarding my own uh, disjointed th thoughts here, but especially as it ties into uh, industrial society and its future. Because I notice that both of you guys are probably a little bit younger than me, and you've you're, you've rather embraced generously this uh, modern technology much more so than I have, and I've rather been standoffish about it for many years. So please, your comments? Michael? Well, uh, I would agree with you on the industrialization. Uh, essentially, that is really when it really began. The studies of behavioralism go back to the 1800s, but the implementation into it, uh, I think, really start, uh, I think, around, around 1951, uh, Harry S. Truman started something called the Psychologi uh, Psychological Strategy Board, also called the Operations Coordination Board, and also called the Special Group. Look up the Special Group, and uh, who was involved in that is Gordon Gray, uh, Heinz Kissinger, and uh, those of the like. And it really did begin with that because that was the process in which they put children through the mill to become, you know, good government citizens of where, you know, you do your daily job and you work, you go from school to work. You know, basically the educational system, as Jack Gillow said, was pre-programming to get you to go from the school system to learn how to do something to work, you know, to work, to work for, to be a part of the collective. And I would agree with that. And let me just throw in, I, I certainly agree as well, and I think we can trace a very a very specific history in which the industrial robber barons of the 19th century were the ones who founded the uh, the foundations that funded the work of, of many of these scientists in the early part of the 20th century quite explicitly. And in 1933, you had the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Max Mason, who wrote that the foundation's policies were, quote, directed to the general problem of human behavior with the aim of control through understanding. The social sciences, for example, will concern themselves with the rationalization of social control. The medical and natural sciences propose a, a uh, propose a closely coordinated study of sciences which underlie personal understanding and personal control, etc., uh, etc. Et so basically, it was quite, a, I think, a, a conscious and straightforward attempt to to try to rationalize, regularize, and and uh, and control the society in quite an explicit way for the the benefit of the industrialized uh, economy that was coming about. So I think there's a clear link there. Well, you know, I think both of you hit on some really good points here. Um, I guess I guess I'm uh, I'm rather concerned. Uh, not over so, but it is constant in my mind that. Uh, 
you know, I almost feel like uh, we're under the thumb of, of, a, of a central committee, if you will, of slave masters. And all of our uh, productive output is being stolen from us. In fact, it's being mined or harvested and being used against us. You get that sensation? Definitely. Uh, honestly, I, I kind of call it like it's like a gear. You know, we're cogs in the gear. And at one point in time, opportunities uh, and, and, and things were available to us to better ourselves. And now it's exploitation. It's it's like you know, essentially they have they are they are a horde of locusts on a fresh tr oak tree, and they just keep taking away and eating away at our resources and at, at the manpower. I mean, you know, when you have a PhD in something and you're waiting tables or wearing a paper hat, you know there's something wrong. Yeah, I hear you. You know, I'm uh, I'm old enough to remember. Uh experimenting with LSD and things like that when I was a teenager and in my 20s. And, you know, I was gravitated to uh, older people that I could learn from. And uh, so if you were to watch that film called The Net, uh, LSD and something else in the Unabomber, uh, that German film, I think you'd get a sense of where I'm trying to go with this because I think we can kind of trace... Uh, uh, some of the activities of the people like Jeremy Bentham and then down through time with uh, I.A. Richards, the stuff that was being done uh, during the World War II years, uh, even with uh, the stuff that Tavistock was doing. And uh, then when we watched that film called The Net, um, and then read also Kaczynski's thesis, you know, we're really kind of on the edge of the abyss. We're almost like a herd of lemmings being herded along here, and that's just something that uh, I want to explore more so I can determine ways that uh, can be put forward in concise, very easy language so that uh, the lemmings... Uh, and begin to reverse the tide, as it will, Lee. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the human herd, tide. The, the, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like the way the Indians, the Indians, uh, the American Indians used to herd buffalo to the edge of a cliff so that they could uh, store up food for the winter. <laughs> we call that here, we call that the social construct. You know, basically <laughs> the environment is uh, established so that you learn from others. And if they're doing the same thing, they should be doing the same thing as well. Well, I'm going to consider that word. I, I really appreciate uh, your show and, uh, uh, again, your work, uh, Michael. So uh, thanks for letting me weigh in tonight. Well, thank you for those thoughts. And let's let's pick up from that because um, Lark there was, was mentioning the idea that he feels that we're under some sort of central committee of, of control that's that's planning out this agenda. And I, I want to explore that concept a little bit because we've we've taken a look at some of the characters who are behind this and the, the Leipzig, Leipzig School and the people who have come out of that. And we've talked about people like Skinner and Watson and even Aldous Huxley and his brother Julian and... And, uh, and of course, there's a lot of different people who are involved in different aspects of this, Michael. But I, I'm interested in the way that these different disparate people who, uh, who seemingly are working in different fields and different areas and different time frames do or don't connect to, together into some sort of coherent 
holds, some sort of overriding agenda, as it were, or if this is just some some part of the, the scientific zeitgeist. And, and we can look, for example, at at something really specific, like the, the Huxley family, as I mentioned. Uh, uh, Aldous Huxley, of course, writes Brave New World. His brother Julian Huxley is a uh, the founder of UNESCO, and he's also uh, one of the co-founders of the World Wildlife Fund and a promoter of eugenics and uh, the coin the, the man who coins the term transhumanism. Um, also, uh, we can we can follow that family lineage back to to Darwin, and of course, uh, their grandfather T. H. Huxley was Darwin's bulldog, and all of that. So we see them coming out of that 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 milieu, I guess, in in England in the 19th century, from which. Ultimately, eugenics arose from uh, Darwin's cousin, uh, Francis Galton. So we can see sort of a family tie there. But when we're talking about disparate people like like a Watson or a, a Skinner or, or some of these other characters, is there some sort of coherent agenda that's at work here, or are these people working in disparate, different ways? I, I think there is uh, some sort of co- uh, coherent agenda. I wouldn't say that it's you know uh, fully fleshed out. I would say that they're working towards the same ends, if you will. Um, let's say you take Darwin. Out of Darwinism came social Darwinism, the, the, uh, the theory that the cream would rise to the top and that those, uh, those who were deemed unfit should be pushed away from society, pushed off the earth. Exactly right. Yes, uh, within less than a generation, his cousin was already coming up with that interpretation of uh, of Darwin's uh, famous work. So, on that note, uh, so much to talk about, but we only have one more segment. So stay tuned right there, and we'll be back to finish up tonight's episode with Michael Vale of StratRisks.com right after this. Friends, here we are in the closing minutes of tonight's broadcast of Corbett Report Radio, and we are talking to Michael Vale of StratRisks.com, a one-stop shop for so much information on geopolitical uh, grand chessboard. But tonight we've been talking about the scientific underpinnings of some of the research that's gone on into manipulating human behavior and how that has been deployed against us in a way uh, to obviously further the aims of uh, certain well-connected elites at the expense of the vast majority of us out there, which always uh, brings us to the question, Michael, of what people can do to, uh, to really combat this trend. Is there anything that we can do at our level to really uh, to fight back against this type of colonization of the mind that's been going on really in a, in a scientific fashion for decades now? I like to like to think that we should all be on different sort of frequencies, like a radio station, um, because uh, since we're part of the social construct, sometimes we sort of follow each other around and, and look at the same things, and sometimes that's good, and it's good for people to get fresh eyes on different things. But but also we need to see the world differently sometimes because um, there's a bit of a piling on, you know, like we have the truth movement you know a movement of truth and truth comes from you know psych uh not psychology but uh uh uh, truth comes from you know the idea of an overall grand scheme that all makes sense but you know facts are, are far more important than truth so honestly i think what we should do is is be informed about all the systems in place in the scientific dictatorship but but also be aware, be independent, 
and be your own island of freedom. You know, be your own be your own person. You know, don't be a part of the collective. Don't be a part of the community. And the community is in place for a purpose, so that you fall in line and become one with. Once you get away from that, and of course, once you get away from it, you'll be ostracized by your peers because you're not on the the same you know play, you know chessboard as they are. But you're better off for it. And the farther you get away from it, the better. And you'll see how your life will improve improve because of it. That's such an important point, and I couldn't agree more, especially because the idea of community itself is just an imaginary concept that means whatever anyone defines it to mean. And, of course, if it's defined in a way that uh, suppresses your your ability to think freely or to think outside the box, then that will benefit certain people and will hinder your, yourself. So I think we have to be aware of how these types of absolutely meaningless terms can be bandied about and can actually keep people from really thinking and experiencing what it is they naturally think and experience. Absolutely, and really the, the main problem is now is that due to the economy and, and things like that and the sort of you know slow strangulation of, of our economy and such, people don't have the time of, uh, to do, you know, to pursue, you know, happiness like it says in the Constitution, you know, to, to you know, basically do what you want to do, you know, Get into your own interest, uh, you know, and, and seek out whatever you're interested in. We're too busy trying to turn a dollar to, you know, to basically be fed and have clothes on our backs and a roof off over our head. I think that's one of the main gears right then and there. Unfortunately, it's the uh, the treadmill that keeps us distracted just trying to get the daily bread. Well, on that note, we're going to have to wind up this conversation. Fascinating stuff, as always. So for people out there who are interested in your work, including uh, your interviews and other things you've done, just fire out your coordinates one more time. Sure. Uh, Stratrisk.com, uh, VantagePointRadio.com, and my Twitter is Stratrisk. Absolutely. Well, a fascinating conversation. So, Michael Vale, I, uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Definitely. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you to all of you out there for listening in to tonight's broadcast. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again tomorrow night. So until then, thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>